future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. That acute observation from author William Gibson, the cyberpunk pioneer, captures the predicament of our age when new technologies overlap with the many that are already established. The lucky early adopters get to live in the future while the rest of us play in the past. Welcome to Copyright Clearance and its podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. In the past decade, the future of book publishing has become more evenly distributed as publishers and authors made the leap from page to screen. In this new digital environment, one organization is asking questions about its own future. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, joins me from his New York office every Friday with the latest book business news. And today, Andrew has a crystal ball. Welcome back <laughs> to Beyond the Book, Andrew. Greetings, Chris. Uh, so indeed, this is really very much about the future and about the past. The big news uh, is once again from the book industry study group. Mark Kuyper is out after just one year at the helm. Tell us what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, is it possible to be surprised and not surprised at the same time? You know, as you say, just a little more than one year after being named executive director of the Book Industry Study Group, uh, Mark Kuyper has indeed resigned. In a brief announcement, uh, BISG said that Kuyper's resignation would be effective immediately and that he intends to explore other areas of interest. There's that phrase that we hear so often when executives leave. Now, our listeners will probably recall that Kuyper took over as executive director right just about June 2015 to replace Len Vallejos, who left to buy the tattered cover bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Uh, and prior to moving to BISG, Kuiper was the president and CEO of the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association. Uh, he was also a BISG board member. A uh, search for a new executive director has already started, I'm told. But with the BISG annual meeting uh, planned for September 30th in New York, it was unclear uh, as of this week if, if they would have a new executive director in place by that date. And of course, we wish Mark Kuiper all the best on his future en- endeavors. Uh, I've met Mark on a couple of occasions and done a couple of panels with him. And I have to say, I'm not surprised uh, that he's on the go again after only a year, because from where I sit, BISG and a number of organizations like BISG are facing a pretty tough patch here, because with the digital transition now pretty much complete, it's evolving every day, I'll give you that, but we are in a digital publishing age. I think it's getting harder and harder to come up with issues to study. You know, And back when digital was just getting started, everybody needed guidance about these big picture issues. And we all wanted to sort of divine where the future was heading. But these days, you know, there are just fewer issues that are in need of study. And frankly, there are just so many fewer issues that are available to be studied as so much of what we do now in the digital age is governed by contracts and governed by non-disclosure agreements. But I do think the work that BISG does is necessary if it's getting a lot harder. Uh, and I do hope that they will find a solid leader who can come in and take over for Mark and get on, uh, move on to the next chapter. Uh, while digital has now arrived and it is reshaping the publishing business, often, you know, there's disruptions uh, many times a year. There is certainly no shortage of complex and thorny issues to study. Well, indeed, never any shortage of thorny issues, and that's what keeps our podcast series going. And, and we've got some news, in fact, on a final order in a closely watched copyright case, the so-called GSU e-reserves case. Tell us about that. 
Yes. So we do indeed have a final order. This and the second go around of the closely watched, uh, Georgia State University e-reserves case. The, the case is Cambridge University Press versus Patton. Though I don't think its contents will be a surprise for those who have been following, uh, the news of this case. In a brief nine page final order dated July 27th, uh, Judge Arinda Evans basically wrapped up all of the case's outstanding motions. Uh, she rejected three outstanding publisher motions and deferred ruling on one, uh, and basically, effectively ended the case for the second time. Now, our listeners will recall that Evans' first rule for Georgia State University in 2012 in this case, but that decision was reversed and remanded on appeal uh, by the 11th Circuit in 2014. But in March of this year, Evans once again ruled for Georgia State University, and this order represents the disposition of the case, pending, of course, another appeal, which we'll have a little bit more on that in a bit. Throughout the litigation, I think, you know, the supporters of the publisher plaintiffs in this case have uh, complained, at least they've complained to me on a number of occasions, that uh, it seems like Judge Arinda Evans really sort of has it in for them in this case. And I have to say, in reading this brief order, there's not a lot in here that's going to change their minds on that score. So, indeed, uh, we have phony issues and, and few enough surprises when it comes to Evans' uh, decision in March. And you believe, though, that this particular order, this latest one, is a significant one. Yeah, I do. You know, and right, it's no surprise that Evans, you know, declined to issue a strict injunction against Georgia State University, ordering only that GSU has to follow uh, the copyright policies that are not inconsistent with her decision. But you know, let's take a step back, I guess, and give a quick refresher on the case for people who may have lost track of it. This is a fair use case that's in its ninth year of litigation. It was first filed in April of 2008 by three academic publishers: that's Cambridge University Press, Oxford University Press, and Sage Publication, and it supports by the Association of American Publishers and the Copyright Clearance Center, who are essentially paying the bills for the publishers here. The, the suit alleges that Georgia State University administrators were systematically encouraging their faculty members to offer what they say are infringing, uh, but undisputedly unlicensed digital copies of course readings to students as a no-cost alternative to traditionally licensed course packs. And as AAP President Tom Allen has said and has written uh, in the pages of PW, the litigation is is a test case to sort of better clarify acceptable fair use practices for such digitized readings in the classroom setting. I think it's fair to say that the case hasn't gone the way the publishers had hoped when they filed it back in 2008, and that may be the understatement of the year. But to add insult to injury, Evans, in her final order last week, also affirmed that the publishers not only are going to have to pay the, the plaintiff's legal bills here, but GSU's legal bills as well. And GSU is asking for about $3.3 million. And it's that last part of the order, the fees, where legal experts tell me that Evans's final order could be significant. And that's because the publisher plaintiffs in the GSU case were the first to put the Supreme Court's guidance in another recent copyright case, Kurtzang versus Wiley, to the test. Now, our listeners may remember just a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court in Kurtzang had issued new guidance explaining that fee awards in copyright cases should not be awarded to a prevailing party simply as a matter of course, and that the reasonableness of a losing party's case should really carry substantial weight in determining whether or not a judge should award legal fees to the prevailing party. Uh, and in a June filing, the publishers quickly seized on that and asked Judge Evans to reconsider her award.
awarding of legal fees to GSU in light of the curtsaying ruling, basically arguing that their case against GSU without question was reasonable as the law in this, in this area is really very much unsettled. And for her part, Evans agreed with the publishers that they indeed did have a reasonable interest in bringing this case against GSU. And she conceded that the law on such fair use matters around e-reserves is somewhat unsettled. Still, in her order, she denied the publisher's motion to reconsider the fee award. And in so doing, she explicitly noted that the suit was indeed a test case that was organized and paid for by AAP and CCC. In other words, the actual named plaintiffs in the suit, which is Cambridge, Oxford, and Sage, were not really paying the lawyers here. And because the publishers ended up prevailing on just four of 99 claims and along the way had to abandon 25 claims and then failed to establish a prima facie case of infringement in 26 others, Evans said it was actually just for the publishers to pay the defense's costs as well. And that's significant. Significant, multiple lawyers told me because Evans seemed to be saying that test cases could change the calculus for fee awards in a copyright case. The message seems to be if you're going to organize test litigation as opposed to, say, a straight up copyright dispute between two parties where both parties have some skin in the game in terms of you know paying their lawyers and hence possibly settling, then you are going to be on the hook for paying both sides of the case, both legal fees, if that litigation does not go well. And I think that leaves a few questions. And the first is, you know, without clarification, is that ruling from Evans on fee awards going to have a chilling effect on whether groups like, you know, AAP or maybe ASCAP or the Authors Guild potentially, whether or not they decide to participate in and organize copyright test cases in the future, knowing that they would be on the hook for both sides if the suit fails. And this is even if the court recognizes a reasonable interest in bringing the suit, which Evans did in the GSU case. And the second question is, of course, is there going to be an appeal? And the legal experts I speak to tell me that Evan's very, very brief discussion of her fee award has certainly opened the door for an appeals court to weigh in. In fact, it reads almost like an invitation to appeal. The relevant passage on the fee award that I'm talking about here, in light of the Kurtzang uh, case, for example, is only about a half a page long, and it doesn't contain a single cite to another case. Now, Evans does note in some other parts of the decision that there are other factors that are involved in granting fees, such as the need to deter overly aggressive copyright claims, for example. And in her previous ruling uh, that was overturned and sent back to her by the 11th Circuit, she did note that the plaintiffs failed to present an efficient case against GS you and thus, you know, sort of pumped up the cost of defending the case. But mentioning the test case scenario here is, you know, kind of a big meatball to leave hanging out there. You know, maybe she just threw it in there as an aside, but the lawyers I talked to uh, suggested that they would want some clarification on that. And of course, there could still very much be an appeal on the actual fair use merits in this case. So once again, nine years in, uh, Judge Evans' final order in this case for the second time may not be the final word, and we will wait to see whether or not an appeals court will be asked to weigh in again. So stay tuned. Well, indeed, and we will see you in court and see you back again next Friday on Beyond the Book. Andrew Albany's senior writer for Publishers Weekly, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, as always. Next up on Beyond the Book, available beginning Monday, August 8th, I speak with Andrea Powell, Chief Information Officer for UK-based Cabbie. From understanding the impact of climate change to promoting equality for women farmers, the global mission at Cabbie is to improve people's lives by providing information and applying expertise to solve problems. 
we see our role here at CABI as being one of bridging the gap between research and the practical application of scientific knowledge. Um, so we're really very much about problem solving, understanding what works and what doesn't work, and helping farmers, mainly in the developing countries, helping those smallholder farmers to apply the knowledge that they need to solve the problems that they're experiencing with their crops. So we're not a, a heavy-duty research organisation, nor are we just a publisher. Um, we're a, a, a problem-solving, science-based organisation that uses its information skills to, uh, to serve our, our mission. Founded just before the First World War, the Center for Agriculture and Bioscience International manages research and assistance projects around the world, including in South America, Africa, and Asia. Subscribe to Beyond the Book to hear Andrea Powell and all of our programs. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center with its subsidiaries Rights Direct in the Netherlands and Ixis in the United Kingdom. CCC is a global leader in content workflow, document delivery, text and data mining, and rights licensing technology. You can follow Beyond the Book on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to the free podcast series on iTunes or at our website, beyondthebook.com. Our engineer and co-producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book.